All right, pop quiz. True or false? North America's first recorded instance of dressing in disguise on Halloween was in Vancouver in 1898. If you said true, you are correct. But you would be in uh, the small percentage that got that question right on this survey, this question of Canadian facts and figures. And we thought it would be fun to take a look at some of these, as well as the results, as we celebrate Canada's birthday tomorrow. And joining me to talk more about this is the president and CEO of Historica Canada, Anthony Wilson-Smith. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. Uh, These are some difficult questions. Oh, I would say not just difficult, Joe. They're probably downright nasty at some (laughs) points. They have some tricky turns in them. They pick on the kind of obscure elements of some stuff that's better known. They're pretty twisted. (laughs) So uh, let's go through some of uh, the results and and such. Were there some areas where people that took the test did better than other areas? Well, I mean, in general, people tanked, right? I mean, the average, uh, out of 30 questions, the average respondent got 12, right? Uh, 3% would have got an A on this, meaning between you know, more than 24 or more answers, right? And they're not bad Canadians for that. I mean, we set this up to be nasty. All right. And so what did, what did you learn then that, that people, because a lot of it is it's kind of trivia too. Like that question about Halloween starting in Vancouver, I'll fully admit, I didn't know that. I probably would have guessed false and I would have been well, with the, you know, 80% that did that. Look, frankly, so would I on a lot of this <laughs> stuff and I live with this stuff every day. So an example of like where we, you know, we reached far was, I do think, especially in the wake of the Raptors, a lot of Canadians know that basketball was invented by a Canadian, Dr. James Naismith. But that's not what we asked when we asked a question. We said, true or false, Dr. James Naismith presented a silver medal to members of the Canadian Olympic basketball team at the first Olympic Games in which basketball was represented in 1936. That's a lot of information in that in that statement. <laughs> and it is. What do you think, Joe? True or false? I, I'm cheating. I have it in front of me. But I, I wouldn't have known how to answer that. I probably would have said false because it seems like there's too much going on there. Yeah, it's funny, and I think I would have said that, too, uh, because 1936 is a long, long time after. You, know, you wouldn't necessarily have expected him to be alive, although, coincidentally, I just discovered earlier this year, there's actually a recording of Dr. Naismith made in 1938, shortly before his death, so you can actually see and hear the man who invented basketball, but, um, you know, who, who'd have known? <laughs> so why, the, why did you guys, or why did you decide then to go with a question or a statement like that that's, kinda, that's more complicated and with more information rather than saying Dr. James Naismith invented basketball? Well, uh, first of all, you know, we could have put out, uh, you know, 30 interesting slash obscure facts about Canada. What we find, though, is that people are, you know, people are competitive. I mean, Canadians, for all, we're quiet. We're competitive people. We want to know if we know more than the other. We like to be tested within. And, and also people like two-way engagement. They don't just want to be talked at. So we figured by putting it out in this format, it gets people engaged. And the evidence is that it has. And then, you know, as to why we do it, um, because actually Canadian history is pretty cool and a lot of people don't think that. And if you can get people seeing some things that are a little off the track and saying, wow, that's really something, then maybe they're going to say, and now I want to find out more and, you know, and open a whole new field for them. So a lot of people knew the answer regarding Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, and I like to think that one of the reasons for that is, you know, we also do the Heritage Minutes, those one-minute things in our place, and we did one that was very, very successful, not when I was here, but back in the 90s, and it's still around. And also, um, there's been a lot of stuff outside of the books about uh, Winnie the Pooh, but it was nice to see, yeah. So, yeah, 68% knew that it was true that uh, Winnie the Pooh, and this was the statement put out, was inspired by a real bear named for Winnipeg, who traveled to England from Ontario with a Canadian soldier during the First World War. It sounds totally false, but it's true. Well, it's fun, and a lot of it, you were just saying on the other question we had about uh, Dr. Naismith, a lot of it is about the way that it's set up, too, and there's so many pieces of information in some of these that, you know, four elements of information within might be right and the fifth wrong. Right, and yeah, and it has to be, it has to be all of it, right? Yeah, I mean, we have another question you'll see in there about uh, that Canada is only one of, three, one of only three countries where you can see the Northern Lights, true or false, and in the end, the answer is false because there are, there are, there are more than three countries. So that's where I say we get a little nasty or tricky. Right. So, I mean, technically it is one of three, but like you said, there's more than three. 
Yeah. So, you know, a few, we just threw a curve in there just to make sure people were paying attention, but most of them, you know, most of them are pretty clean, but they're of elements, you know, quite a bit off the beaten track. So another one of my favorites is true or false that the Jolly Jumper, which any parent is familiar with, was invented in Canada. And I'll cut right in there. The answer is true. It was a woman in Manitoba. And about half the people got that, 48% got that one correct. Yeah, well, of course, statistically, right? You've always got a half a you know you have yeah. a half a chance on true false going in, <laughs> as I remember from my high school days, benefiting a few times. And did you find though, when you mentioned the 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 minutes, the the heritage minutes, I would imagine that any of the statements that included information from those, you'd get a better response, or people would 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 be more. Uh, would have a better chance of being correct because people remember those minutes. Yeah, we see a real uptick. For example, Joe, I mean, we didn't conclude anything on this, but uh, these days if we did, you know, we had a minute out earlier this year on the Vancouver Japanese-Canadian Asahi baseball team of the 1930s. The awareness level of that has gone through the roof since doing that and other people doing it, you know, and other people paying attention as well. So, sure, you know, we get two, three million views online within about a month of putting each of those out, so it helps a lot. Um, people, a uh, pretty good response for uh, the official phone number for Canada is one eight hundred O Canada. Yeah, I know, and it's true. And you know, there's another one I looked at. Said, no, it's just too obvious. It can't be. But simplicity is a great thing, isn't it? And some bureaucrat was pretty smart putting that in. I can't even imagine how many times that number has been called now, though, since we've started talking about these results, and, and since we <laughs> yeah, in the last few days, it's probably been a huge increase in people calling it. And I'm sure it's still the same message we always hear on those show. You know, we are very busy right now. The wait time is significant. Please call back. So. <laughs> Please go do another test and call back. That's uh, right. Um, is there a question that, that people scored, people right across the country scored the highest on? Um, the marks were generally so bad that uh, I hate to single anyone out because, uh, you know, there were some that people hit a bit higher on. But um, we did, I think, uh, one of the ones... Well, I'll tell you one of the ones where people did the worst was um, the Newfoundland dog became an official symbol of Canada after the governor of Newfoundland gifted one to Prime Minister Louis St. Laurent to celebrate Canada, um, Newfoundland joining Canada. So if you didn't have it in front of you, Joe, what would you think of that? I would probably say false. See, I would say true on that because it felt like there was so much information, the timing was on, that, uh, that it was going to be true. But no, it's not. It's, you know, that one was really set up to fail people. And well, I think also, that, but that's the one, too, that you think, well, there might be one piece in there that's not true. But I also, I've never seen the Newfoundland dog as an official symbol of Canada. Have I? No, um, I I although, you know, uh, one of the other questions is that there is you know, a distinctly Canadian-bred horse called the Canada Horse. Well, that seems so obvious that it's not on, but it is. There really, you know, there really isn't. Actually, that one I knew. A Newfoundland dog, you know, uh, and then some things are very straightforward if you just take the logic. So one there is that moose, you will find moose in every province except Prince Edward Island, and every province and territory. Well, actually, when you think about it, so that's true. And when you think about it, it makes sense because moose aren't about to, you know, to use the causeway going out there. They weren't about to get on a boat. I mean, Newfoundland, you know, Prince Edward Island is actually isolated. So how were they going to get there otherwise? They didn't. Exactly. But then you probably, rather than just go with your gut on that one, I imagine people might have thought, well, well, maybe there's a province where they've been hunted too much or where they're just not there. Maybe they're not in certain geographic regions. And then you overthink uh, it. The old curse of high school and university exactly. days, overthinking, that's right. <laughs> yes. Um, across the country, if we break it down by provinces, the average number of correct answers, um, BC didn't do very well. Well, true. I don't have the number in front of me. I, I know that's right. But, on the, you know, again, that doesn't mean you're bad Canadians, the people who took failure you know, for doing it. Uh, We're overthinkers. And it's really actually not a measure of of knowledge of Canada in particular, you know, I mean, for people, if you hit over 24 of 30, you're, yeah, you're pretty exceptional or else you're luxury rolling with you. Or you spend a lot of time paying attention to bizarre things and trivia. <laughs> That's right. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, actually almost all of these questions are drawn from the Canadian encyclopedia, you know, which is online only these days and which we've, we've had, we've run for about 15 years now. And so is our team. We have about seven or eight full-time editors and they've been saving those up when they were working on bigger articles during the years. And we just said, twist, you know, pull some twisted stuff out, pull some smaller details out. And, um, 
you know, and hold, hold them in. So we've run this for a couple of years now, and that's where it comes from. Um, Anne of Green Gables, that question, 62% got it correct that it has been translated into more than 20 languages. You see, if, and if it had just been that, I, I would see people getting it. But then it goes on to say, but is especially popular in Japan, where it became part of the public school curriculum in 1952. That, I think, might have thrown people for a bit of a loop. Yeah, I think everybody knows the uh, the popularity, or a lot of people are familiar with the popularity in Japan. Having been to Japan, I've seen it firsthand. Also, having been to PEI at the you know the farm where the fictional story supposedly took place, um, you can see it there too. But I had no idea about the curriculum either. <laughs> um, no idea why why that no. came to be. I mean, I'm still you know there would be people who could explain why it's so enormously popular there. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, that might be an interesting one to, to delve into a little bit more. Um, do you hope when, when you do things like this and put out uh, questionnaires and get people doing these, does it at least, even if we do poorly, which I think BC, so BC was the lowest score with about 10.4% was the average of correct answers or 10.4 out of 30. Uh, Alberta, surprisingly, right next door did the best with 13.4. Does it at least get people talking about our history and talking about some of the, the quirky things about Canada? Well, that's the thing, John. That's exactly the hope of it. You know, that rather than say, gee, did you know that George Washington cut down the cherry tree, true or false? I mean, folk could find some Canadiana to work with. Uh, um, you know, and there's all kinds of other things out there. Uh, Canadians invented, my understanding is that Canadians invented the green garbage bag, for example. Well, it may not be a heroic moment in history, but sure was an important one, you know? Yeah, exactly. And Shania Twain's Come On Over, the best-selling Canadian album of all time. I did not know that. No, and I, you know, I mean, that's sort of, certainly I can remember it coming out. I knew it was popular. I probably would have said, I don't know, I probably would have said Rush or, you know, something by them or something else. But so, nice surprise, too. <laughs> exactly. So uh, the takeaway from this is, uh, if you've done the quiz, or uh, even if you uh, you see that we didn't do so well in BC, like you said, we're not bad Canadians. We just uh, don't know all of the ins and outs and all of the trivia of our country. If you took the test you're a good Canadian because you took the time to say, hey, this, I want to see what I know, I want to test myself, I want to think about this subject. This is really one where the winner is anybody who takes part. And yeah, if you got, if you got three out of 30, you're still doing fine because you did it. <laughs> Can people find it somewhere? I mean, we've given away some of the answers this morning. Can people find it somewhere if they still want to go and oh, take sure. it? Oh, sure. On any of our social media. So it's Historica Canada, as it sounds, altogether.ca. It's on our website. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I mean, we're kind of all over the place, too. All right. Well, a very uh, fun conversation to have, especially on this Canada Day long weekend. Uh, Anthony Wilson-Smith, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Joe. My pleasure. Totally. We uh, definitely have a theme going on the show today. It is the Canada Day long weekend. Uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about some more obscure facts about the country and not to feel bad if you didn't score very well on the Historica Canada test. Uh, but this next poll, the results not quite as obscure, probably more what you might be thinking. And this was a poll done by Research Co. And the president of Research Co. joins us on the line now. Mario Canseco is here. Good morning to you. Good morning, Joe. Uh, you asked people about uh, what they're proud of in Canada, what makes them the proudest. Uh, what did you find? Well, this is one of the funnest surveys that I conduct. You know, I, I did this for the first time back in 2008. And what is interesting is over time you see st certain uh, traits of the country and certain features of life in Canada that do very well and others that tend to be dropping as the years go by. So there were a couple of surprises here. Uh, of course, uh, Canadian flag is number one at 93%, so many, many Canadians proud of the flag. Armed forces at 89%. But the Canadian economy at 80%, that was ranked number three this year. Back in 2008, we were in the middle of the big economic crisis globally, and we didn't have a lot of Canadians feeling good about their own economy. So something is definitely better now than it was 11 years ago. Interesting. Uh, you also asked about health care, and that got a pretty big response as well. Healthcare is interesting because we do see 77% of Canadians saying that they feel proud of the system. Uh, the number is significantly higher in Ontario, and it's lowest in Quebec and in Alberta. So we've been talking about how Quebecers and Albertans don't get along very well. This is a topic that they can discuss and be happy about. <laughs> Interesting. I wonder, too, when, we talk, when you're asking people about health care, uh, is it the fact, are people saying they're proud in that we have the health care system in Canada that's, that's a public health care system? Or I would imagine they're answering on a kind of the bigger question of the system itself rather than perhaps their personal experience in the system. 
there's definitely that difference. And I think what we see here, particularly uh, when it comes to Quebec, is they're still struggling with wait times. It's one of the things that is, uh, has been very difficult for very governments of all political stripes to deal with. And I think there's a, definitely not a situation in Quebec where you're feeling great about the system because your own experience is different from what it is in the rest of the country. And a difference between men and women when answering this? Yes, 83% of men say that the system works well. 71% of women are happy with it. Uh, I think it's a situation that is related more to your own experience. And ultimately, I think um, that might be one of the reasons that we see this 12-point gap. It's not a situation where most women are saying, oh, I'm definitely not happy with the healthcare system or don't feel any pride uh, on it. Um, But there's a big difference there that is definitely noticeable. And so we know what people are most proud of. What are they least proud of? Well, that was quite shocking. You know, the the three things that ranked lower in the survey were the monarchy at 47 percent, parliament at 45 percent, and the Canadian justice system at 40 percent. Now, what's interesting here is the first time I asked about this back in 2008, the, the, the level of a pride for the monarchy was in the late 30s. So there's been a jump of more than 10 points on the monarchy, and it's been quite a decade. You know, we've had a couple of marriages, we've had some new kids, we have uh, certainly a situation where there's been more visits to Canada from some of the royal members. Um, what is really tricky for me looking into the future is what is going to happen when we have a new king, when Prince Charles becomes king, are we going to continue to see the level of a a pride on the monarchy that we see right now under Queen Elizabeth? Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting and and curious as to what it was in in particular that caused the, uh, the uptick in popularity. Well, I definitely think it has a lot to do with the coverage. You know, back in 2008, uh, we weren't really talking a lot about this. Uh, the kids were young, if you will, if you want to talk about Prince William and Harry. Um, now it's a very different situation. And I think what they've done is really try to connect uh, with uh, residents, Canadians, Britons alike, uh, in a way that is different from their predecessors. I think there's a sense uh, from Prince William and Harry um, that they are definitely closer to the younger generations. And I think that is definitely one of the things that is responsible for the shift. Uh, Younger people are looking at the monarchy certainly in a different way than they were 10 years ago. All right. Uh, You also um, asked people, and you mentioned this, so the justice system came in at 40%. Surprised that it it was so low? I am because it's been remarkably stagnant over the past few years. It's always been 40, 41, 42%. What is really shocking about this is the discrepancies between provinces. And British Columbia did not fare very well here. We only had 27% of BC residents who say that they are proud of Canada's justice system. It's the lowest in the country. Uh, Definitely not a good situation. And I think there are lots of reasons for this. You know, we've had a lot of discussions about money laundering that went nowhere when it came to actual arrests, um, certain court cases that never get tried. Uh, all the situation related to missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls. So it's not like we've had a great run. I don't think there's be a lot. That there's a lot of people who say yes. This is one of the things that makes me proud about Canada, especially when you compare it with things such as multiculturalism or bilingualism. And multiculturalism, the the number on that, sixty six percent, but even higher in BC. Highest in BC, seventy three percent, definitely doing better in this particular issue. Uh, we are a very multicultural province. Uh, the numbers are definitely different when you move into areas like Manitoba and Saskatchewan, to a lesser extent, Quebec. Uh, so we seem to be embracing multiculturalism definitely more than other parts of the country. Uh, Quebec returns the favor with bilingualism. 55% of Canadians are proud of it, but in Quebec it climbs to 64%. Hmm. Uh, anything else stick out uh, for you in this survey? Like you said, you've been doing it since uh, for, for over 10 years now. Anything else stick out in this most recent one? Well, one of the issues that was interesting as well is Parliament. Uh, Back in 2008, we only had 32% of Canadians who felt pride about Parliament. Now it's 45%. We could argue it's a low number. It's less than 50% who are happy with our elected politicians or unelected politicians in the case of the Senate. Uh, But it's definitely trending upward. And I think it has a lot to do with the situation that we had back in 2008, minority government, everybody fighting each other. It's odd, but when you have governments that hold uh, the actual uh, power in the House of uh, Commons, you're more likely to have people who voted for those parties say the situation is fine. So you go to from 32 percent in 2008 
to 45% now. We'll see what happens next year when we have a new parliament. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious there, too, if it's like the healthcare system in that people are proud of the parliamentary system, uh, even if they're not particularly proud of what we're seeing in government right at the moment. <laughs> well, what's really interesting, looking back at my thoughts back in 2008, conservative voters were more likely to say they were proud of parliament because they were the governing party. This time around, it's the liberal voters who say, yeah, everything's fine. I'm proud of parliament. Hmm, interesting findings for sure. Well, Mario, thank you so much for joining us on this Canada Day long weekend and sharing some of these results. Appreciate your time and have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much uh, and have a great Canada Day weekend too. Well, there was a personal story written in the Huffington Post and the headline on it reads, I have a disability. My school told me I'd die in an emergency. And the read itself is quite eye-opening when it comes to what this young student goes through, thinks about and is uh, is is struck with when a school has an emergency drill and also thinking about what might happen in a real-time emergency. And that also got my producer of the program here, Ben Dooley, thinking about it. And he joins me on the line to talk a bit more about this. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Jill. What did you first think when you read this story? And, and this student goes through what it's like to go through emergency drills, uh, to be in this Vancouver school, and, uh, and her what she's up against should she have to get out of that building fast. Well, well you know, the, the first thing that, that struck me is, yeah, th- th- this is a true story. This is how, I, I don't want to say every student with a disability but the majority of uh, students with disabilities feel about, about, you know, emergency drills, because I know that when I was in high school, we, we didn't have the best emergency plan uh, to get me out of the school. What was the plan? So we, we had this little, uh, it was kind of like a, a stair lift is what it was, and I w- would transfer out of my wheelchair and and go down the stairs on the stair lift, which, which on the surface sounds like an okay plan, except nobody know, knew how to use this machine. Huh. So, so uh, in, in the event of an emergency, I would, I would go to where this stair lift was, and, and nobody would know how to use it, and nobody would be able to get me out of the building. And, and so you, you would think that then, you know, when you have those regular emergency drills, that would be a good time to figure out how to use the machine. <laughs> right. I mean, how many times do you have to do that before somebody realizes we need to train somebody to work this machine? Yeah, yeah. but, but what happened instead is that I would leave class. I, I would be told what, when we were going to have the emergency drill, and I would leave class a couple minutes before it was going to happen and just go down the elevator. <laughs> Which, uh, which is not the point of an emergency drill. No, no, no it's not because uh, when when the alarm does uh, sound, the elevator doesn't work. It it just uh, goes straight to the main floor, and that's not a resource that I can use uh, to get out of the building. And it's and in reading the the piece in the Huffington Post and to listening to you and and in some of the examples that you gave me before this before we were chatting, uh, it does it. This is clearly something that is top of mind for anybody that has a mobility issue. And it seems like in a lot of cases, whether it's a workplace or a school or any other public facility, it's uh, while the plan is all hands on deck, which sounds great, but in the event of an actual emergency, isn't going to work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like uh, at CK and W, we're on the twenty-first uh, floor, and the plan, in theory, is that I'm supposed to call security, and they'll cut, come up and uh, and get me out of the building. I, I don't know how they'll they'll get me out of the building, but but that's the plan. And uh, so I wonder what happens if I I called security and they already evacuated the building. Yeah, you would be stuck, I would imagine, waiting uh, for firefighters or waiting for first responders to get to you. Exactly. And, and, and you know, uh, firefighters and first responders are great, but sometimes, you know, getting up 21 flights of stairs is not, not the easiest thing. And, and then getting me down 
those 21 flights of stairs is, is a challenge too. So is it something, and, and again, my guess is people that don't have any mobility challenges likely don't think about it. When, when people are, are looking for a job, they might think about the neighborhood, uh, they might think about the city, uh, the community, probably don't think about what floor it's on. Uh, but as somebody who's in a wheelchair, you must consider that before you decide or before you think about going to work somewhere. Yeah, because, you know, if, if there are 21 flights of stairs and, you know, there's no elevator or something, then I I'm, can't, I physically can't uh, work at that location. But, you, you know, at CKNW, we have, we have six elevators. Uh, so, so generally, there's at least one working. So that that uh, was an encouraging uh, thing when I when I chose to uh, work at CKNW. Uh, because there have been weekends uh, when I've arrived here and the elevators are out of service, and walking up 21 flights of stairs is not the easiest thing to do for anybody, uh, let alone if you have mobility challenges. Uh, have you ever been stuck though, either in the building or trying to get to work? Um, luckily. No, uh, I've been, uh, I, there's been times where, you know, I might have had to wait in a long line because only one of the elevators or two of the elevators were in service. But, but generally, um, I, I've been okay when I get to the building. It's, it's the elevators on, you know, like the, the transit system that, uh, that sometimes uh, throw a wrench in my plans. You know, and that's an, another thing as well. And and we've talked about it uh, when the elevators have been broken and when it's been an issue, when you've had to go several more stops on transit to, to get to, to navigate getting here or getting anywhere, really, because you need obviously need that elevator. Uh, do you think do places need better systems? Because that could be an issue, too. If there was an evacuation of a SkyTrain center or uh, from a train, that's putting you in a dangerous position, putting anybody in a wheelchair in a dangerous position. Do you think, do companies and places need to have better systems and test those systems to make sure they do have a plan in place? Yeah, I, I think uh, there they definitely needs to be, you know, uh, more, more emphasis on on uh, emergency evacuation plans because, you know, we're expecting the big earthquake uh, at uh, any time now. And, and what do we do uh, when that happens? I feel like uh, there definitely needs to be uh, more emphasis, not just for uh, disabled uh, people, but for uh, my able-bodied uh, colleagues as well. What could be done then? Because it does seem like if we use the example of here at CKNW, like you said, we're on the 21st floor. If if you can't get out of the building or anybody in in that position cannot get out of the building and you're right, waiting for first responders to get up 21 floors, say there's a fire on the 18th floor, that's not going to be a solution as well. I mean, is it something as, as it sounds so simple, It but it also sounds kind of Strange is it something like having a stretcher that coworkers can help carry people out or or something like that? Yeah, I I think that's that's a, a great idea, Jill. Is to you know have a stretcher or something that I can be carried out on and have you know uh, two or three people that are are designated that if there's an emergency, these people are responsible for making sure that everybody who is supposed to be on that floor gets out of the building. Uh, and you mentioned, too, uh, that you thought about this when you were in school, and we're talking about this because of this piece written by uh, a school, a student who is fearful uh, that she would not make it out in the event of, of an emergency. Uh, I guess the hope is that, that schools will think about this and schools will read this and hear this and make sure they do have a plan, not a, just a, a catchphrase, all hands on deck, but will actually have a plan that works. Yeah, because, you know, I... I remember that when I was in high school, I would I would be in the halls and I would look at look up at the fire alarm, and I would think to myself, you know, if this thing goes off and it's a real emergency, I I, I really don't know how I'm going to get out of the building unless I'm you know with friends that are are strong and capable of of carrying me down uh, the, the two flights of stairs or whatever it was. Yeah, and two flights, I would imagine, is not as daunting as 21. No, 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 it's not. All right. Well, Ben, thank you for flagging this and for coming on and talking about it. It's a, it's a super important issue and one that we should probably talk more about. But thank you so much, and uh, we will see you at the office. Thank you so much. 
time to talk a little provincial politics. And if you were following along, you know there was a Western Premier's meeting this past week. So what was accomplished? What did we walk away with? Let's check in with Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry, who was on the line with us. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. What did we get from the meeting? I think we were expecting perhaps some sparring between our Premier and Alberta's Premier. Didn't really seem to go that way. No, these things rarely live up to hype. I mean, a lot of people thought this was going to be, you know, duke it out between Horgan and the three Conservative premiers. What takes over is real politic, and the, the rhetoric sort of subsides. When these guys all get into the same room and have dinner and have a glass of wine, um, the, the antagonism, if it was ever there, generally dissipates. You know, I remember covering Western premiers years ago, and you'd think going in, someone like Bill Vanderzan would be picking a fight with... Uh, you know, someone, an NDP premier in Manitoba and such. And it, these things never really materialize. The one truism that ever comes out of these things every year is the endless annual tradition of agreeing on pledging to end interprovincial trade barriers, which has been going on for years, uh, never really seems to be accomplished to any great degree. And all it takes is one little flare-up, as we saw with the Alberta wine war, to undo some of these uh, progress that's made on trade barriers. But I think, you know, the, the premiers accomplished what they all had going in. John Horgan, you know, wanted to make it clear that he did not agree with his three counterparts in the West on issues such as pipeline building, um, the carbon tax. Uh, so, you know, Horgan wasn't going to change his position, and nor should he. And Jason Kenney and Scott Moe and Brian Pallister had their positions, and they were going to change them as well. I think they basically agreed to disagree and to put aside their differences and accentuate the positive rather than the negatives, which should always be destructive and does, that really don't do each other much harm. If any of those four, I mean, Pallister's facing an election, but if Mo and, and Kenny and Horgan were on the cusp of an election, we may have seen a little more verbal fisticuffs than we saw. But right now, it's everybody wants to get along. <laughs> so is it much more than a photo op at this point? I've always thought these things are largely photo ops. I think there's more behind the scenes of progress that is made because so much of governing does depend on the personalities involved. And if Horgan and Kenny can find a way to get along but disagree on certain issues, that's going to serve them well, both serve both of them well on various issues as they try to resolve them. I mean, it's, it's not just about um, the Trans Mountain Pipeline when it comes to Albert and BC. They do have serious interprovincial trade issues, whether it's commercial trucking, uh, you know, border crossing. Uh, Kenny wants to be part of and encourage the LNG development in the north part of the province. He sees that as an opportunity potentially for Alberta workers. So they've got some cross-interests as well, as much as they have differences. So, again, I think these, these Premier's gatherings are more of a personal thing um, for them to sort of forge an alliance uh, because they all occupy very unique positions. There's only so many Premiers in this province, and there's only four Western Premiers, and uh, nobody else can really say they've got the same position as they do. So they've got to work together in a way that nobody else really has to work together. But again, I think sort of regional interests and provincial interests usually trump everything else, and that's usually the case at Western Premiers, which is long on social gathering, short on specific policy advancements. Right, because nobody expected that Jason Kenney and John Horgan would, what one of them would suddenly change their mind and they'd be walking out of there holding hands saying, oh, we agree on everything now. <laughs> well, exactly. John Horgan was going to come out and say, you know what, Jason Kenney made some good points on Trans Mountain Pipeline. I think I support it now. <laughs> and Jason Kenney wasn't going to say, John Horgan made some good points about tanker traffic. We're rethinking our position. That's, that's simply not going to happen. And I, nobody expected that to happen at this conference. But again, it's important for Kenney and Horgan, I think, to establish a working relationship. Both are very smart politicians. You know, they can both be long on rhetoric, um, but that's part of politics. And the other part of politics is governing. And Horgan discovered early on than Kenny the realities of governing when he had found himself approving the Site C uh, Dam exp- uh, project, uh, when he approved the LNG uh, pipeline up north, um, you know, refusing to ban fracking. All the realities of governing sort of descended upon Horgan some time ago. It's just beginning for Jason Kenney. He's now off the campaign trail onto the realities of governing. And so he has to temper his positions and his rhetoric on certain issues. And, you know, it's ironic the day after they they had their big meeting, the the Horgan's government's in a court in Alberta arguing that Alberta's law to literally turn off the taps to British Columbia was unconstitutional. So the court fights go on. There's no question. And they have to from both sides' perspective. But it doesn't mean Horgan and Kenny can't get along on a personal level because at the end of the day, getting along serves their political interests better right now anyways 
than uh, you know violently disagreeing on certain issues. That might help when you get closer to, to testing the electorate, but right now they're between elections, and it's very much in their interest to sort of soft-pedal the rhetoric and, and get along on certain other policies. Right, and, and I think you make a good point, and they probably had stronger words when just speaking to each other rather than the image that they were putting out to, to people watching the gathering. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the public stuff is so much you know, rhetoric and political theater. Um, Horgan's very low-key at these things. He really doesn't want to ratchet up the pressure or the, the rhetoric when it comes to taking on Kenny and the other premiers. He's much more, I think, the diplomat in these situations where he says, oh, look, I'm, you know, all I'm saying is we want to protect the coastline, which is a very reasonable position. He doesn't get into the nuances of what happens if there's no pipeline in terms of the economy. Kenny's in a more desperate situation where they really do need this pipeline economically, and that's why he's a little more on the edge about this. But again, I can't imagine Kenny and Horgan getting into a shouting match behind the scenes. Far different. I think they're having a beer together and uh, talking about the things they do agree on rather than things they disagree on. They're going to let the court sort this out. It's not going to be sorted out by the two of them in public. Exactly. Uh, What happens now with uh, summertime is generally a a slower time when it comes Mm -hmm. to provincial politics. Uh, What's your thoughts on as far as BC? Uh, What are we looking at as still big political issues as we head into the summer? Well, trying to predict BC politics, sometimes a fool's errand. Um, we've always thought summers would slow down, but you know, ever since the 2013 election, summers in BC politically have been pretty busy. Now, the NDP was very busy because they came to power in the summer, if you recall, in 2017. We've been sort of going nonstop since then. I think they're going to take a bit of a breather now. They took a little one last summer, but not much. But the big thing to keep an eye on, of course, as we head into the summer is the wildfire situation. That can sort of tend to, to take over things in terms of provincial government focus and resources. I think Mike Farnworth, by his own admission, the public safety minister, acknowledges he potentially could be a very busy guy this year because he's responsible for public safety, evacuations, that type of thing. And the Forest Service itself is going to be very nervous about the wildfire situation. So I think wildfires is continues to be a, a an issue of potential alarm. We're w- waiting for the government to start moving a little more aggressively on the cannabis front. They've been very slow in B.C. But I suspect um, both the B.C. Liberals and the B.C. NDP and, and the Greens are going to take a, a little lighter approach this summer, hit the barbecue circuit a little more than they did in the past, and perhaps not... Um, not focus so much on politics and some of the big issues that have dominated the last couple of years. But I think wildfires is, is potentially the big issue of the summer. And what about teachers? Yes, I don't think much is going to happen on that, Jill. The, the, the contract expires, well, tomorrow or today, actually, uh, midnight tonight. And they have got some bargaining dates set down for July, a bit in August, which is an acknowledgement by both sides that neither thinks they're going to settle the contract, I think, before the school year re- resumes in September. So I don't think a lot is going to happen on the teacher's file this summer. Uh, there's, there's no prospect of a strike vote from the teachers. They signal that they know their membership is not there in sort of withdrawing their services. So the question will become as we move into the fall, that's when the focus will shift to the teacher's talks. How far along in the school year does it progress before the employer, uh, in this case it's the NDP government, invokes a lockout of teachers to force their hand when it comes to contract language change governing class size and composition and dangles in front of them a wage increase that was going to be denied to them until they signed that contract. So teachers going into the summer with the prospect coming back in the fall with no wage increase and no wage increase on any time soon. So the pressure on the teachers begins more in the fall than it does right now. That contract will lapse tonight, and nobody's going to notice a change. All right. Uh, lots to watch, uh, even as we take a, a bit of a breather for the summer. Keith, thank you so much. We will talk to you again soon. Take care, Jill, anytime. Well, it is the perfect weather to head outside, maybe grab a good book, a nice iced tea, maybe a lemonade, and uh, hunker down with that book. So if you're looking for something to read, fear not, my next guest has some great recommendations. We are joined on the line right now by Samantha Frankel, the assistant manager at Book Warehouse. Samantha, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Hi, good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. It does seem like people, hopefully, whether it's on vacation or maybe just a bit more downtime, we have a bit more time to read uh, during the summer months. And you've got some great uh, recommendations for people. So let's start with fiction. For people who like reading fiction, uh, what Mm. is out there right now that you would say are must-reads for people? Oh, there's so much great stuff out right now. It was almost hard to pick just a few to talk about. Um, A couple of my favorites, though, this year, one that has been very hot is uh, Daisy Jones and the six 
by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I love this one. It's probably going to be one of my favorite reads of the entire year. And uh, it's a rock biop written as an oral history, but it is fictional. And it's about this band that uh, called Daisy Jones and the Six. Um, nobody knows the reason behind why this band split in the 70s right at the height of their ultimate fandom and you're about to find out why it really immerses you right in the decade the music the time period the characters are unforgettable you have daisy jones this enigmatic leading lady that all the girls wanted to be in the 70s you have billy dunn the brooding leader of the band and just the connection that these two have making music during this time period it was so good it's such a fast fun read so perfect for hitting the beach or if you're going on vacation or you're just wanting to curl up with a good book (laughs) very nice so this one is um it's a fictional book but it's it takes place in a real time Yes, and it uh, definitely gave me very big Fleetwood Mac vibes. I uh, had some of that playing while I was reading it. So, um, yeah, really fun one and definitely one that I think I'll read again one day. All right. Uh, What else is in the fiction category? So this one just came out. It's um, by Elizabeth Gilbert, who most people know for her memoir from many moons ago, Eat, Pray, Love. Well, this is a fiction work by her called City of Girls. Um, The main character is 19-years-old Vivian. She's just been kicked out of Vassar College during the 1940s, and her parents send her to Manhattan to live with her aunt, who owns a flamboyant, crumbling midtown theater. So you're entering this world of sex and drama, showgirls, actors, and theater people, and um, as she's living out this life that she never thought possible, a personal mistake she makes results in a professional scandal, which ends up taking almost her entire life to fully understand how much this turn of events has turned her entire world upside down. You're looking at her at the beginning. She's 89 years old and looking back, telling her story and how she realizes this time in her life is pivotal to her entire being. Uh, I really love this. Um, I've read some of Gilbert's other work, and this is just fabulous. It's very easy to get into the writing style. Um, You're definitely immersed in the time period. The main character is one of those ones that you're rooting for, even when she's making mistakes, that you're just shaking, wanting to shake her head and be like, why are you doing this? But it's incredible. And one of the things I really like about this is that she has a lot of female characters that are discovering sexuality and who they're being and not being apologetic for it, especially during this time. So a really good one if you're a fan of historical fiction and strong female characters. I'm glad you brought this one up. I actually had this book in my hand the other day and I didn't buy it because I was hesitant to buy a fiction work by an author who I've only read um, Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. Mm -hmm. And it seemed, I thought, okay, well, she was really good at writing her story and this nonfiction a story that she had but I, I I wasn't sure I couldn't make that leap but it sounds like she was able you, to I I haven't read any of her fiction before I'd read the Eat Pray Love and I'd read another one that she did that was nonfiction called Big Magic about creativity so I also was actually a little nervous picking this one up because I so enjoyed her nonfiction and sometimes it just doesn't translate to a fictional character but uh she did a really good job and if you liked her writing style and her nonfiction works I think you'll enjoy the fiction one all right. Uh, we've got a couple more in this category. What else uh, for people who yeah. like fiction? So one of the biggies that uh, just came out this week and it's already been selling like hotcakes is the latest by Kate Atkinson. Um, it's called Big Sky, and it's actually the fifth installment in her Jackson Brody series, which is a bit of a fan favorite. And um, the last one in that series came out in 2010. So this one's definitely been a long time coming. We have our detective Jackson Brody. He has relocated to a quiet seaside village at this time with the occasional company of his teenage son and an aging Labrador. His current job is he's gathering proof on unfaithful husbands for um, suspicious wives when a chance encounter with a desperate man on a cliff leads him into a sinister network and then back across the path of some old friends. So definitely, if you're a fan of the Jackson Brody series, if you're a fan just of Kate Atkinson, which definitely I've had a number of customers in, very excited about this one. And it's hot off the presses, just came out this week. So, All right. I'm sure people reading that series have been waiting for that one. One more in this category. So for fiction, my last one, it's an oldie but a goodie, and it's probably one of our all-time best-selling books at the Book Warehouse on Broadway. It's called Good Omens. It's by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, and if you're a fan of fantasy, these are definitely names you would know, and if you're not, then 
definitely this is a great one to pick up if you're interested in either of these authors. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I think really just describes this book to a T, it reads like the book of Revelations as penned by Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> a lot of people are aware of this in that it was just made into a limited TV series with uh, David Tennant from Doctor Who. Um, and uh, Michael Shannon, and it's been getting a lot of critical acclaim. But the book is fabulous. Um, it's looking at the idea of the end of the world. The apocalypse is coming next Saturday, in fact, just after tea. Um, the idea that people can be spe- skeptical about it. However, the armies of good and evil appear to be massing. The apocalypse, um, bikers of the apocalypse are hitting the road for this. You have angels and demons that are trying to stop this from happening. And somebody has misplaced the Antichrist. So it's <laughs> quite funny. Um, it's definitely got a little bit of tongue-in-cheek looking at some religious stuff. Um, both of these are great writers. I've read books by them, not together, but as standard works. And um, it's just a really fun one. And as I say, one of our best sellers, probably of all time at the store. All right. Uh, let's move on to nonfiction. And uh, you've got three for us here. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're like me and you have an obsession with the Food Network, I don't watch a ton of TV, but when I do, it seems to always be the Food Network. So this one I find really exciting and fun. Uh, Save Me the Plums. It's by Ruth Reichel, who is a big name in the food industry. She was an editor-in-chief at the Gourmet Magazine for 10 years. She's a previous restaurant critic for the New York Times and the LA Times and a James Beard multi-award winner. Uh, and this is a revealing memoir looking at her time at Gourmet. So it's kind of a peek behind the curtain, behind-the-scenes look and how this former Berkeley hippie type, as she describes herself, enters the corporate world and all of the kind of behind-the-scenes for that. So the stories about they were big moments in the food business while she was there. So you're looking at when restaurants became an important part of pop culture, the rise of the farm and table movement, and it was somewhat of a golden time in print media when she was there as well. So this is a really fun kind of juicy read for that. It includes recipes, which I know one of my coworkers has wanted to try out, and she says they look amazing. Um, And it's just looking at a personal journey of a woman coming to terms with the idea of being in charge of such a huge group of people and such an important work, how she's making her mark and following her passion. So definitely if you're a biography fan, if you're a food fan, uh, this is a great one to pick up for a summer read. I love the title and not don't give it away if there's a if there's a special meaning in the book mm-hmm. for that, but it's such a great title. It definitely, it makes you want to find out what's going on with these plums. <laughs> exactly. All right, what else, what else do we have for uh, nonfiction? So this one just came out in paperback, and uh, it had a lot of buzz in hardcover. It's called uh, Land of Lost Borders, Out of Bounds on the Silk Road. It's by Kate Harris, and it was actually the winner of the RBC Taylor Prize. Um, it's, um, as Pico Iyer calls it, a modern classic. Um, if you are into travelogues or adventure nonfiction, this is definitely a great one to pick up. Um, Harris is a teen all she wanted to be was an explorer. And she realized that this particular occupation had somewhat gone extinct at this point. She felt that everything that needed to be discovered had already been discovered. So her way of dealing with this is she vows that she's going to become a scientist and go to Mars. So to pass the time, though, while she's waiting to go to university, she goes on a bicycle trip on a short section of the Silk Road with a childhood friend. And then she goes to university and she's doing her thing and becoming this um, and working in labs. And she realizes that an explorer in any time of period is a person who just really refuses to live their life between the lines. So she quits the lab, she hits the Silk Road with her friend, and she's determined to bike it from start to finish. So you're looking at her journey physically on the Silk Road, as well as a person, though, um, looking at just the idea of exploration. There's bits of history and science and just the idea of being an explorer in this time period. So it's a really great one, as I say, if you like a good adventure story, if you like a good kind of almost coming-of-age story, a really fun one to pick up. That one has been on my list to read for weeks now. So now oh, I'm really? now I'm I'm hooked on it. Now I will. So it'll be the next the next one up uh, awesome. on on the list. Yes, um, kids and teenagers they can also uh, spend some time reading this summer. What do you have to recommend for them? Okay, so teens, and I know I just read this one the other day, and I loved it. Um, it's by Mariko Tamaki. She's a Canadian um, author, a graphic novelist, and she's been a New York Times bestselling author. Um, the title just draws you in right away. It's called Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, and it's all about our main character, Freddie, who all she wants is for Laura Dean to stop breaking up with her. Um, they've broken up five or six times. She's in one of those toxic relationships that... 
unfortunately, we've all known that person or we've been that person ourselves. She keeps going back. Her friends can't understand why, but something's got to give because her heart is breaking. She might lose her best friend or her last shred of self-respect. It's one of those great stories of young love and the idea of considering what would happen if we ditch the toxic relationships in our life that we crave and embrace instead the healthy ones that we need. Um, Beautiful graphic novel. I love the color palettes in it. I love the story. I wanted to break up with Laura Dean by the time this was over. So it was definitely one I was rooting for the main character. And it was just a a good read of reminding of first love in high school and all that good stuff. And you're right. What a great title for a book. Oh, that alone makes you want to pick it up and it's worth picking up. (laughs) All right. What else is in the uh, kids and teens section? So um, if you're a middle grade reader, which um, I definitely am, there's some amazing stuff out there for your 9 to 12 year olds. Um, Nevermore by Jessica Townsend is actually one of my favorite books to read this year. Um, She's an Australian writer, and this is the first in a planned series. And the reaction I had reading this, it reminded me of when I was young and read Harry Potter for the first time. That excitement of being immersed in this new magical world that had such an attention to detail. Um, these characters that I really enjoyed and I wanted to get to know more about. Um, the main character, she is cursed. She's born on the unluckiest day of the year, and so she's blamed for every local misfortune that happens. And she's also been cursed to die on midnight on the day of her 11th birthday. Oh. Uh, when I, which exactly, you're, it has a bit of a Harry Potter vibe in that, a cursed child. Um, she's whisked away, however, by a man named Jupiter North, who takes her to a secret magical city called Nevermore, where she has the opportunity opportunity to vie for a place in the city's most prestigious organization, the Wondrous Society. Uh, so it's really fun. You don't know a ton going in just reading either the blurb or listening to my review of it, but I have to say I loved this one. I immediately had to pick up book two, and it just it reminded me of that magical feeling you get when you discover a new world and new characters that you really love. So definitely one to check out for the Harry Potter fans in your life. All right. You've also got another one with another great title, To Night Owl from Dogfish. This one, both the authors are very acclaimed New York Times bestselling authors, Holly Goldberg-Sloan and Meg Wolitzer. Um, And this one's actually written entirely in emails and letters. It's about two girls that are both 12. You have Avery, who's a bit intense, a bit nerdy, and she's afraid of everything, who lives in New York. Then you have Bette, who is fearless, outgoing. She loves animals and the ocean, and she lives in L.A., So they're both being raised by single gay dads and their dads fall in love. And so the girls sent against their will. They want to have nothing to do with each other, but they're sent to a sleepover camp to try to get to know each other while their dads build on their relationship. However, things, as they often do, get out of hand for both the girls and the dads and the summer adventures no one could have expected unravel. Um, I loved the movie The Parent Trap growing up, both the Haley Mills version and the Lindsay Lohan one. So this one definitely took me back in the idea of these two girls. They're wanting nothing to do with each other. They're not wanting their dads to be together. And as the novel unravels, they realize that maybe they need each other and uh, maybe they could just be friends. So really fun. Um, It really read like 12-year-olds, which I like, that it read of their string of consciousness, the way that they would write emails to each other and that they'd be talking about one thing and then jumping to another one, jumping to another one. Um, And it definitely dealt with some bigger issues as well, which is great. And they did it in a way that I thought was quite appropriate for the age group. All right, uh, Samantha, we've run out of time completely. So I will just mention you've also uh, recommended The Girls by Lauren Ace in that category. And uh, Book Warehouse is the place people can get all these books, learn more, get great advice. Thank you so much. You've left us with a ton of choices. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it.